right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. The episode that you're about to listen to is the last one that we're doing for 2022. Um, and I just wanted to really thank you guys, the audience. Our audience tripled this year. Um, people really gave us good feedback. People are starting to rate and review us on the different platforms. And it really feels like we've kind of built a, a community of listeners. And the more that we hear from you guys and what you're interested in, the more that we can shape the content um, to reflect that. So thanks for being a listener. And uh, hopefully we'll give you a better product in 2023. What you're about to hear is the third of our episodes on 2023 predictions, and they're coming in a pretty uh, variety of, of topics on this one. So Bob Greenlee talking about regulation and politics and government, Jordan Off talking about the economy, venture capital, technology, um, Ari LaFell, who will be new to the listeners, talking about sports, uh, and Julie Wernersbach, who is the head of P&T Knitwear, um, talking about the year in books both behind and ahead. All right. Uh, our next guest is very familiar to the listeners, Bob Greenlee, who is my longtime friend and colleague. Bob is the CEO of Touch Holdings. We work together on basically absolutely everything um, and the smartest person I know. So, Bob, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. So you uh, when we ask you for predictions, you pick three topics. So um, AI, climate tech and third party developers and privacy, which I think could also get extended a bit into metaverse. So let's start. Have you used chat GPT yet? Yes, I have. I've been I've been playing with it a lot lately. So what do you think? Um, so it's really interesting. I wanted to play with it. I've gone down two paths. The one path is I've seen, you know, online looking at Twitter and whatnot, I've seen that it's produced a lot of really good content on current events and things that it has extensive data at its availability. Yeah. So I was like, let's see what happens when you go into a fringy area. And the fringy area I know probably the best is Japanese philosophy. So I asked it about you know, various 18th century Japanese philosophers. And what you realize is it's able to get really basic stuff and package basic stuff really well. Like it would write a really good seventh grade essay on, you know, Arai Hakuseki. But if you really ask it a tough question, like compare Arai Hakuseki and Ito Jinsai, it doesn't really do a good job. So if you really go really deep, it's not very good. Yeah, I mean, I have to um, say, I've been playing with it too. And I, it's like a slightly more cohesive Google. Like, I really haven't seen much of a value prop in it yet. It, if you really want, if you want, like, if you're targeting, like, text written for, like, the fourth grade reader on stuff that is generally right, it's actually very good. Um, it doesn't have any sourcing to it. So what the problem is, it's, like, 80% right and 20% wrong, and you can't figure out where the 80 and the 20 are right now, and that's kind of frightening. What percentage of school papers will now be plagiarized from ChatGPT, and how often will the teacher realize it? I, I actually, I mean, let's say middle school and high school, I would say probably 20% will be plagiarized. To, for kids who have access to it, they will be because it writes a solid, well-written like paper of that level. Yeah. Um, and I think teachers will pick it up about 75% of the time because it has very noticeable ticks in its speech. It, ha it uses repetitive. Right. So responses. if you were smart enough to just edit it, which I think a lot of the kids won't be, um, you, you have a better shot of getting away with it. College essays too, right? Um, and when I was in high school, I think statute of limitations has passed. Uh, some people paid me to write their college essays for them. Um, seems mm -hmm. like the, the current version of me get put out of business. Uh, by, by chat GPT. Let, let's pivot though to, to AI regulation itself. Um, does anything happen in the next 12 months? I mean, my sort of experience is the, the delay between when a new technology, but especially this different comes out and when regulators wrap their arms around it, it's usually a period of years, not months. What do you think? So the some answer to you is nothing will happen happen. There will be no regulation of any consequence that's passed around AI. What I think will happen this year is that people will formulate what the problem is, right? And what people are, what you see in chat GPT, for example, is there's no sourcing and there's no real way to tell what is chat GPT and what is what's original stuff. And I think people will start to understand that that by itself is a problem. And that might be part of the problem people are looking at when they talk about AI. Why should regulators care about sourcing for people's papers or work or anything else? 
I mean, the same reason people care about plagiarism generally, the same people reason people care about intellectual property generally, because people want to know whether work is authentic or where it's not. And generally speaking, and I'm going to, I'm like on a Japanese theme today, so I'm going to go real deep in the That's, Japanese Middle Ages. Poll, the thing that our listeners actually like the most is 18th century Japanese philosophy. So well, I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to even go deeper. I'm going to go like 14th century for a second. So in 14th century Japan, one of the biggest things and one of the strictest punishment things was forgeries, particularly around land titles and land deeds. It was really, I mean, you know, you not only, if you were found out to be forging documentation, not only would they kill you, they'd potentially kill your whole family. So, and it's this, the reason why that matters is because the, the accuracy and reality of uh, very authenticity of various types of documents is critically important to society functioning. And this is a real threat to it, potentially. And that could be the, you know, the thing that people look at in AI and get worried about. So um, when there actually is AI regulation, what do you think the, the main tenets should be or will be? My initial take right now is that the onus will be on AI producers to have some type of metadata or indicia that they can use at the data by data site to prove out that something was derived from their data, right? And that they will have the, the burden will be on the producers to prove out this is something that we produced. This is, this is a result that, that we determined. This is a, a dolly picture that we did rather than a third party so that other people can't go out and claim it as their own. And so for the people who are kind of AI doomsayers and they believe that ultimately the, the destruction of the human race will not be nukes or pandemics or climate change, but AI, what would be the regulation they'd want to put in place to try to prevent that? So I, I have a real high degree of difficulty getting into the minds of those people. I just, I don't understand where the issue is. Um, I, I'll tell you how I've been looking at it most recently. It's the same, we're going to go on the same theme. So after messing around with like Japanese philosophers, I started asking um, chat GPT Zen Koan, to like see how it would respond to like unanswerable paradoxical questions of language. Um, and the answer is it did a, like a predictably <clears throat> shitty job at it. Like some of them it understood based on the, you know, the secondary literature that was around, like what people were getting at, like, does a dog have Buddha nature? Like it understood the general thesis, but what it lacked and what you could really tell it lacked is what Zen is going after, which is like the immediacy of human experience and that moment of initial consciousness that you mm -hmm. can tell is authentically human and like authentic, like the authentic kernel of consciousness. And I think that's what people are afraid of. And honestly, even as amazing a technology as it is, it's painfully far away from that. And if you see an AI program experience Satori, then maybe they have in fact made it. But at that point, like they've probably exceeded most other humans in most other ways. So like, what's the big problem? They're probably fairly realized. Non-threatening. Yeah, I mean, it, oh, right. We, we've been talking a bunch on this podcast, partly because of Sam Bankman-Fried about um, effective altruism, and you know, there's a lot about that movement that I think is right and interesting. But their obsession with with the destruction from AI to me makes virtually no sense at all. Um, let's switch over to another topic that you know and care a lot about, which is is climate tech. Um, interestingly, I won't tell you what Jordan said, but I just asked him about this a couple of minutes ago. So we know a lot happened in Congress last year. One of the maybe the best thing that happened actually in Congress last year was the passage of significant funding, both the infrastructure bill and the inflation reduction act for all kinds of new, uh, climate tech, um, and also some certainty, uh, that it will continue over the period of a decade. Given all that, are you bullish on climate tech? Do you think we should be investing in climate tech or do you still think it's, it's pretty iffy? Um, as a citizen, I'm bullish on people investing in climate tech, and I'm bullish on the public investment in climate tech because I think other than being a resident of Chicago, which is too cold and needs to get warmer, I think that it's important that we do something about global warming. It's important we do something about the catastrophic you know, events that have taken place because of rising temperatures. So in that respect, it's important. As an investor, you know, I think climate tech investments are hard, and many more will fail than would otherwise, and propping up failing investments is is maybe economically not ideal. Yeah, so that Jordan remained a, a kind of a client. He was nice about it, but if you kind of read through the lines of what he said, he kind of remained a, a climate tech skeptic. From a big, I was actually, just, as, as you know, I've got this 
constant uh, text group going with a bunch of other political consultants, and we were kind of talking about climate change this morning. And I think people they were excited about the nuclear fusion stuff. And, and it seemed to me, tell me if I'm thinking about this the right way or not, it is great that they were able to finally achieve some level of nuclear fusion. From what they are saying, they're decades away from commercialization. If that's true, we will hit that, you know, one and a half degree, even maybe two degree warming increase before that really happens. So it might help us prevent further increases, but all the cataclysmic damage that will occur from that extra two degrees will, will have already happened. What's the answer to that? I mean, what gets us? It seems like it's not going to be changes in human behavior that's going to save us from climate change. It's got to be technology, right? So if so, what is it? Is it carbon capture? How, how do you see it working? From my standpoint, it's like it's always an all of the above. I mean, I think you're right. Human behavior is never the total solution because you can't make people not be people. Um, but you can make people be 10% less people, right? So you have to do like 10% human and, you know, human behavior, 10%, at least 10% like direct air, ca direct carbon capture and the stuff that climate people don't want you to do. Um, you have to like the gear up the tolerable tax incentives and tax, you know, and tax deterrence. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's whatever by hook or by crook you can find to do it. But I think direct air cap, direct carbon capture through the air is like critically important because we're not going to will our way. We're not going to, you know, conserve our way, particularly with things like Ukraine, right? Like people need a certain amount of electricity. So if that's going to be the case, you're going to have to look at alternative things. I mean, and for next year, like what is a real thing I see next year that makes a difference? I've seen, you know, the, the Biden infrastructure plan includes a lot of incentives for energy efficiency technology, particularly around things like heat pumps that move people towards electricity and away from natural gas. Obviously, with natural gas prices spiking because of the demand in Ukraine, critically important. I think the urge to switch is happening. I think the time is coming. And I think that's something we'll see a lot of this year. Also, there's a ton, new, a ton more EVs out there on the street or models that are coming. I do think we'll start to see much more EV adoption than we've seen right now. I think those two things are very real. On, on carbon capture, because I'm kind of obsessed with this topic, uh, where do you think the technology is today? And if, if you were made czar of, of carbon capture, and I said to you, Bob, what, what do you need to make this a reality? What's the answer? Uh, where do I think? The technology is really nascent, and it is potentially, it's not profitable right now, but I think the technology does exist. If I was made czar of this, I would be looking at the places where you could really get the most climate benefits, where there's the highest particulate density of carbon, you know, uh, smokestacks of power plants, I mean, is like one of the obvious places. And that's where you see these things going in first, but really targeting like the highest density places um, and allowing for whatever types of incentives are needed there. Right. Rather than doing just passive air in random places, it's like, let's let's put the greatest amount of benefit where we can right now. Got it. Or so switching over to your, your third topic, which is third party developers and privacy. It's an issue that you and I have been talking about a, a decent amount over the past 12 months, but I still think isn't as nearly as widely understood as the concept overall of AI or certainly climate change. Just set a baseline for the listeners. What's the issue here? So the issue here for me is innovation and the stagnation of big platforms. And what we see and what we've seen from, you know, Elon Musk taking over Twitter, what we've seen from Meta started to plateau and decline on usership is that these big social media platforms are basically tapped out in terms of creativity, in terms of profitability. Otherwise, the question is then what do you do to solve the problems they haven't been able to solve for themselves? They right. clearly don't want to invest additional resources in it because they're not making additional money. How's, what's, the, what's the alternative way to do it? My argument would generally be if you want more innovation, get smaller companies looking at it. And that means opening both all these platforms up to middleware. Yep. And then in, in terms of regulation, you and I have spent some time this year thinking about kind of the coming metaverse and talk about things like data, portability, interoperability. Um, is there a world where regulation, maybe not metaverse related specifically, but just generally data privacy, some federal version of GDPR, you see that happening? And if not, given that most of your work is actually at, at the state level more than anything else, do you see states adopting their own versions up in 2023? 
So I think we're more, I don't think it's a 2023 thing. I think it's a 2024, maybe 25 thing. But I okay. think that state public utility commissions are going to have to start tackling the digital world. I think it's inevitable that they start to realize that the big platforms we have of today are the 21st century version of the railroads, and they have to find ways to open those up to competition rather than leaving the rails as the rails are. I'd love to find another way to do it. I've been, I just threw out their middleware as a way to do it. The problem with middleware is just like the railroad, you need somebody to require the platforms to let them on. And there's no other, this is where, you know, people who want to be small government never have an alternative. Sometimes bigger players, monopolists, need to be forced to open things up to competition. And that's yeah. the unfortunate now, I, truth. I, I hear you on the state public utility commissions, and, and I like that idea in the sense of you can get action as opposed to relying on the federal government. But, you know, we both at different points oversaw the Illinois Commerce Commission. I, I couldn't envision a world where they have the sophistication to tackle any of these issues. And I'm not sure that and Illinois is considered a relatively advanced state. Like, how realistic is it that public utility commissions can actually deal with this? This is, I mean, the challenge is, if not them, who, right? I mean, it's not a federal star chamber that you're going to have doing it. The Like the Facebook style, let's get a bunch of private experts who aren't accountable to anyone to make these decisions for them is like super anti-democratic and frightening. No, I don't, I don't love it. I think it's, it's going to be a not best solution, but there's politics and, and governance generally is always the art of the possible, right? I don't have a solution, but I have an analogy. So, and I, and I know we're over time now, but um, so as I believe strongly, and I believe you think you do too, the best way to regulate content moderation is not some bullshit internal Facebook panel or even some macro regulators, academics, government and industry panel. It's liability protection, right? It, right now, the platforms cannot be sued for content posted on their platforms itself by users. And as a result, the entire business model is skewed towards negative content, towards toxicity. If Section 230, which provides that protection, is removed, it opens up the world to the plaintiff's lawyers to start suing, much like what happened with tobacco companies. And that's what will actually force the right kind of moderation because jurisprudence around it will develop. Is there any version of that around kind of data privacy? I Yeah. there. I mean, are, are you saying is, is there some way to allow for large class or class type uh, litigation around data privacy? Yeah, that's what we see with the hospitals that are getting sued or in Facebook that are getting sued right now for the hospitals giving away PHI. Um, and yeah. you could see these get much bigger. The challenge and the challenge we've seen from like these types of litigations is the stakes are so low for particular individuals right now that it, it hasn't forced a change in behavior. I think the question is, OK, do we find a way to price people's dignity and their private information in such a way that the stakes become high enough for the platforms to take it seriously? Yeah. Or, or is there I don't know the answer to this question. Is there something that could happen from a regulatory legislative standpoint that would far greater incentivize people and plaintiff's lawyers to start suing over um, data privacy, because you're right. Right now, it's like it's hard to see getting a massive return on the investment. So it's not not that likely to happen. But maybe there's something that could facilitate that. I don't know what it is. But yeah, I was going to say come back in another episode and we'll talk about it. But give me your quick answer. I, I don't know. Let's do it in another episode because it's too much for this. All right. There we go. Bob Greenlee. Thanks as always. Thank you. All right. Uh, my next guest is someone who is very familiar to our listeners, uh, tends to often be the, the highest rated shows that we do. Uh, Jordan Knopf, I think, as most of you know, is my partner at Tusk Ventures, um, comes on frequently to talk about both venture and tech and then the economy more broadly. So, Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, as we are recording, the new inflation numbers came out. Uh, they fell a little bit. So give me your macroeconomic sense of where we are right now and kind of what the next 12 months look like. Um, yeah. So, uh, look, I think that everybody's got an opinion here. They're pretty much all all directionally uh, headed, headed, headed towards a, what feels like an imminent, imminent recession. Um, uh, the magnitude is really all that's being discussed. I think that interest rates are, um, you know, this is a little bit against the grain here, but I, I do think that interest rates um there's only so there's only so long that the government can actually keep them as high uh, or at an elevated rate, just given their, their the debt service that the government has to pay on its own 
on its own bonds. So um, there is a little bit of, of, of pressure for, for, the, for the Fed to, to begin to reduce rates. You know, I think that'll obviously have a positive impact on the public equity market in terms of, uh, in terms of, of, of the discount rate being used for, for growth stocks. But um, you know, more importantly, I think that the, what, what's going to happen with consumers, what's going to happen with, uh, with, with the labor market, um, it, you know, is, is, is a different story. So while today's news was a little bit, was positive and it'll, it'll rally the stock market a bit um, long term, I don't really think that changes the outlook on 2023 too much. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast the other day with Mohammed El Aran, uh, or Darian, I'm, I'm sure pronouncing, but the, the guy from PIMCO, who, you know, is considered one of the absolute global experts on the economy. He made the argument that um, taming inflation, the old ways that you used to do it, raising interest rates, are simply ineffective and insufficient right now because there are just greater factors that interest rates can't really impact, like supply chain, like the great resignation, right? Like just people dropping out of the labor force. I think we all assume that when the benefits ran out, they want to come back in, and that hasn't really happened. So do, do you think that the, the laws of nature of, of economics are still kind of applying as normal? Or when you think about this stuff, are you trying to factor in new things that maybe hadn't been considered before? Yeah, I think that it's uh, it's it, there's obviously so many factors that come into play here. If it were just a uh, you know a silver bullet interest rate you know formula formula, our jobs would all be a lot you know would be much easier. Um, and particularly if we were a bond fund manager. Um, but you know, it, like you said, like people, interest rates can go one way, and and that's why people tend and hedge funds tend not to take really substantial interest rate bets because it can go the other way, um, you know, just as quickly. I would say that that the biggest the thing that we try and factor in, um, and we keep a, try and keep a finger on the pulse of is how are how's all how are all these things impacting the consumer? Um, does those you know that's that's going to be a primary driver in of of certain types of businesses? Um, and and really their how, what their ability to spend is or their perception of their ability to spend. Um, and you know I think that that my view is probably pessimistic for. Um, differing reasons than what some some people would say I, you know i think there's some some material factors that will ha have a major impact on people that are that are that currently are in any form of debt um so you know your ability to leave uh one home for another um if you have if you have a mortgage that your interest rate on your credit card balance which is so credit card balance is that this is a little known fact here that no one's really talking about that they hit their highest rate in u.s history um, last month uh, is that they've actually balances have increased on credit cards 15% year over year, which is the highest they've ever increased uh, in 20 years. So they're increasing faster, dollar amount is larger, and the average APR is like 19.5%. Right. So it's going to be really hard for people that um, you know are already struggling to, to make ends meet to get by. I think that, that so they, they, will, they will, you know, you, the, the, the bottom end of the economy in terms of income will disproportionately, as usual, feel uh, the impacts of, of, of this upcoming recession. But when, with regards to the labor market, um, you know, I think that it eases drastically. Um, and that's a huge driver of inflation. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You and I, it, it's funny when you think about, you're saying a macro thing, but literally, I don't know, 15 hours ago, you and I were, had a call talking about our own hiring plans and our, you know, kind of the budget for next year. And exactly sort of where the labor market is going and the leverage between employers and employees is really dependent on where it is. So we know that, you know, employees certainly had the upper hand during COVID and over the last call 18 to 24 months. Where do you think it is now? Um, you know, I think that that, it, that depends on what sector you're in. And, and it really matters what, I, ironically, you know, in, in any like in any ne <clears throat> negotiation Two sides don't necessarily want the same thing, um, you know, and uh, or they they can and so it can still be a win win relationship between between the two. Um, the values have just kind of you know been focused with some some employees more on 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 flexibility versus um, let's say your your traditional incentives from a few years back. But uh, you know I do think it is uh, to your point you know shifting back over more towards the employer front as 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 the. Uh, as the n number of really talented um, potential hires, that, that pool starts to increase. And I think that that pool is going to continue to grow. Um, you know, I think across, we're gonna, this isn't just going to be a technology, a big tech layoff. I think that this is impacting technology companies that still have a lot of cash in the bank. They just, they just are realigning their focuses 
on on must-haves on their core competencies of those businesses and they're they're not necessarily putting what's going into their budgets this year is not necessarily those experiments that they were running that had additional employees that now they don't need so let's focus specifically on venture a couple of questions one you know 2022 there were very few liquidity events um which obviously was problematic both for venture capitalists, their LPs, and for startups and their employees. Um, twenty twenty three, do you think there's more activity, or is it just a continuation? Um, you know, I think that there's going to be more exit activity. Uh, probably not in the sense of an IPO uh, window opening back up in the market. We'll see about that maybe towards the tail end of twenty twenty three if we're lucky. But I do think that we're going to see uh, a, a significant pickup in M and A activity. So we'll see consolidation. Um, in the form of you know startups consolidating all to, you know, to weather the storm, but also we'll, we're going to start to see um, some incumbents come in here. And this is you know obviously not going to be pertinent across all sectors, but uh, at least the ones that we're invested in, I would anticipate on the fintech side, digital health side in particular, uh, a lot of M&A. Do valuations depress further or do you think that they stabilize at some point? You know, it's, um, I think that the pain is felt in the market maybe not via valuation specifically. It's just a lack of deals getting done, particularly at the Series B and the Series C. So I think that early on, there's people, there's still early stage funds need to deploy capital. You know, they're they're seeing fewer high, the quality bar went up. Um, and that just is a determinant of what deals they decide to do or to go after. Um, you know, <clears throat> where you need to produce metrics um, and where it's getting tricky because the number of, of funds that do those mid-stage or growth stage deals are decreasing. Um, and that there, I guess the capital that's going out the door is decreasing, yeah. um, not, not the firms. Um, <clears throat> and the crossover funds uh, just have less of an appetite to jump in the pool over on that side uh, in, in those middle stages. Right. So we're, we were recently in a period of irrational exuberance. And there was a ton of money both thrown at venture capital funds, tons of other people getting in the game, and just tons and tons of startups getting either more funding than they should have or getting funding when they shouldn't have at all. What's the fallout here? I mean, do, do all the VCs that currently exist still survive a year or two from now? Or do you think now that it's a much tighter market again, you know, the, the, and money is a lot less free, um, funds start to go out of business? So, you know, that's a, it's a real, Really good question. It's it's and it's also kind of an ironic one in that that you know um, startups kind of live in much shorter time horizons. Uh, you know, sprinting from milestone to milestone, whereas venture firms uh, have have a, a, a ironically less scalable business model, but one that is more predictable. Um, and I think to, to your directly answer your question, I think that that's where that's going to be com- uh, firm specific and really dependent on. Um, it's going to have an outsized impact dramatically on emerging managers. So let's call that funds one through three and kind of where they are in their fundraising cycles. And if they were able to get to that minimum viable fund size that they needed to run a business. Um, crypto. So are, are we just in a kind of decline or, or valley or whatever it is? Or, or do you think the fundamental value proposition of crypto itself uh, is no longer viable? Oh, you know, I think that this is uh, the million dollar question. I, look, I think that this is this time is different. Trillion dollar question, not the million. Yeah, yeah exactly. This is a multi-trillion dollar question. So, so it's a, you know, I think that the value proposition, people need to face the stark reality that the this the 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 world that 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 people thought they wanted without any you know any government interaction and any any oversight whatsoever, um, it, you know, kind of blew up in everyone's faces in the way that some people had been saying it would. Um, you know, it turns out the people that end up uh, that end up hurting consumers, you know, ironically, they're they're people, they're not companies and they're not the government. They're the people that run those companies and, the, and that run the government. So it's it's interesting that that now what what the feasible business models are ones that look exactly like the banking system. Where you know stablecoin has dollar for dollar reserves it, at J.P. Morgan Chase that they have a, and they're profitable. Uh, you know it's 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 they're the so it looks very different and the value proposition is going to resonate with different people. I don't think it goes away forever. I think that it you know perhaps the next iteration of it will will be a little bit um, more in the middle, I guess, and more thoughtful around you know. On, around maybe some some regulations that can be introduced like immediately 
Um, but for right now, I think that the exchanges, the volume will continue to dissipate. And I think some, a lot of people just will forget check. They're not going to check their bank. They're not going to check their crypto balances, but they're going to still be in the game. They're not going to withdraw all their cash from there um, outside of the people that were really, really into crypto. And um, unfortunately, you know, are going to a, you know, be taking a lot of realized losses this year and B, uh, you know, that's on a relative basis, but, um, you know, some are going to be forced to take some, some material realized gains and face to face a really big tax bill. That'll be interesting. Right. Also. And, and look, for the people who are true believers on crypto, I don't think the concept is going anywhere, right? Like a lot of tokens will no longer exist. But if you're saying I prefer to invest in a sovereignless currency, not controlled by a central bank, those opportunities will still be there. It just may not be this financial rocket ship where you're going to make 20x on your investment. Well, I mean, I think that now the given how much given the the exposure to crypto is kind of impact you have public companies that their primary business models like Coinbase and so on are are you know in trading uh, cryptocurrencies that you can get exposure to at you know the success of an asset class, not just through holding tokens. That being said, I think that, um, you know, there's going to be there, you need new applications for the technology to be developed, to gain, in, uh, to gain both investor interest and, you know, more importantly, developer interest, the, that developer interest is really what will spark the, those, those new use cases that you're talking about. But if we lose, if developers lose interest to go and still want to work on uh, other projects that, that are, uh, that, that they find much more interesting, um, you know, there's a real shot that, that this could be a much longer winter than, than normal. Right. Let, let me throw a topic at you that you and I really haven't spent that much time discussing. So I actually don't know how you're going to answer this question. Um, so Congress put a lot of money and I think a lot of stability into the development of climate tech uh, in 2022. And so we're seeing more activity. Is that a sector that you find more interesting now or do you think your reluctance in the past is just will continue? Uh, you know, I feel like this this is just the story that continues. I mean, they, I don't know how many years, what when the maybe every ten or you know fifteen years this happens ever over and over and over again. Where and you know the government creates uh, a tremendous amount of incentives to 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 put to make a push into into um, you know clean tech, and you know the last time investors really got burned um, because once those subsidies went away. Um, those business models completely were, were they were they weren't at, yet at the at the stage where they could be self sufficient. Um, so they just completely collapsed. And and we saw this across. There were there were plenty of firms that had launched clean tech focused funds, not just on the venture side, but on the buyout side as well. Um, and you know those 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 all kind of wound down pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, you know I do think that 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 this time is different in that you have much more consumer adoption. The desire for, particularly with electric vehicles, right. I think that you know, that, I mean, that's at this point in the game, I, I think it's a, it's a, the the who's going to survive is like the uh, that's an automaker problem, not a not a clean tech problem at this point. Now there are some some further down the line, um, you know, uh, clean technology that's just far less to something that your uh, consumers likely to interact with in the next five years that 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 I think is in, deeper in the developmental cycle that. Um, those are the companies that will feel, you know, they're, they're going to be the ones that are fully dependent on those, those subsidies for, for a much longer period of time. Got so it. it's kind of a mixed bag. I would say the, 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 the tech that's much closer to, to mainstream adoption or is what we want to call it mainstream adoption, like, uh, like electric vehicles, that, that I think has got the momentum that, that's going to be here for the long All right, So last sector and topic, real estate, your thoughts both on, prop tech and whether that you still think that's a, a worthwhile sector to be investing in. And then more broadly for the listeners, what do you think is happening to real estate values over the next four months? You know, prop tech is an interesting one. I think that that some there's certain business models that are just going to get that are getting get swallowed up with this market. Um, so, you know, your brokerage models, your, you know, the, 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 there's plenty of companies that are focused on, on, you know, providing mortgage underwriting services and, and, you know, We'll, we'll see what happens to some of the more niche players like Entitle and so on. Um, it's really hard to get excited about about um, future growth in this sector, uh, particularly on the residential side. I think that there's going to be some interesting, uh, you know, outcomes in real estate. I would say that more broadly, um, on the residential side, there has been zero pain felt so far. 
you know, the rest of the economy is, is feeling it tremendously. And this is just a matter of time. Um, and as rates go up, let's not forget that the vast majority of, of, the, of consumers today have, have mortgages that are below 4%. More than 90% of, 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 of homeowners that have, have a sub 4% mortgage. So the, people have no idea how to interact with, with, these, with these higher rates. I think that across not just vacation markets, not just second homes, I think that across across the U.S. we see broad-based declines in prices of real estate north of 15, so more than 15%. So if, if you were, you, you're famously kind of a, a renter um, in, in New York. If you were going to buy an apartment in the next 12 to 18 months, um, one, do you feel like it's finally the right time to buy? And two, would you try to pay with all cash if you could, given interest rates? So there's, it's interesting. So yeah, the, the reason why you'd pay all cash is completely different now than it is uh, than it was before. But um, you know, I would say very different calculus between an apartment in New York and then any other <laughs> in any other real estate. Because uh, yeah. New York, there's just. As many listeners probably know, there is a, a, an abnormal demand for 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 apartments that are in New York, as particularly larger ones and more expensive ones that that are you know there is an endless demand and nobody cares. There's nobody living in them. They are there for for, for from foreign investors and it kind of props up that part of the market. Um, so it, it does make it harder to uh, to to make the math work. Um, We'll, 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 you know, so so that that's not working in the favor of of it, of of um of the New York City based real estate market. It's actually making renting more attractive because that market was getting really overheated for a while. So that's always going to be a function of just like rent versus buy math. Um, I do think that you'll start to see people then an opportunity really emerge for first time homeowners that want to take a plunge and actually were patient enough to not get caught up in the in the twenty tip twenty two. Um, that will have an opportunity. Um, probably toward in the second half of 2023 um, to 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 buy, you know, if they can get access to financing, that's the biggest question. So, yeah. you know, if they can get access to financing and liquidity doesn't dry up on the le- on the lending side, they would then, you know, be able to to it, it, now back to your all cash question. If you have all cash, then this would that there could be a potential really attractive opportunity to to to, to come into a market um, that you know that people have been trying to buy into for some time. Um, and then, you know, look, it'll be a higher interest rate mortgage. Um, but that's not that. That's not really that bizarre if you look back historically. Right in the eighties and nineties. Oh, yeah, I think like my parents bought a house in nineteen seventy six. It was probably, I don't know, like double digits, thirteen percent, fifteen percent. Yeah, and then in the eighties, you're looking. I mean, high single digits, like you, you know. And so, but also, here's the thing: you can always refinance, uh, you know, a mortgage. You can't go back in time and pay less for a house. So I think that that opportunity will show up. Um, you know, people that want to sit on their homes because they have low interest rates, life will eventually happen. That's divorces. That's, you know, that's getting a new job in another city. That's just life. And, you know, a family gets larger or gets smaller, who knows, um, needs change. And eventually people will move and probably see some some people make that, you know, depending on how bad the market gets. Maybe they end up, you know, um, you know, selling that house and, and renting or or renting their primary residence. And, and you know, well, we'll see. Behave, but I do get a, a strong um, we always talk about the, the sense that people do end up um, feeling like feels like uh, their disposable income is de- definitely tied to the perception of how much equity they have in their home. And unfortunately, right now, the people that bought at the peak of the market for the first time are now um, so about six percent of mortgages that were homes that were bought in 2022 are now underwater. All right, Jordan, thank you as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great. Welcome back to Firewall. We are in the midst of our Round Robin 2023 predictions episode. With us today is a guest who is new to the listeners, uh, Ari LaFell. Ari joined us a couple of months ago. Um, and Ari, welcome. And tell us why what you're working on with me and, and why you're here. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, so I, I started at Tusk about three months ago um, to work on an idea that was originally called the Hall of Very Good Players. And now after a couple months of iterating, uh, we're branding it as Runner Up Media. And, you know, basically what we want to do is um, we want to create conversation around all these great athletes who are really, really great and they fall short of Hall of Fame recognition. 
Um, so starting with baseball on our website, we will be creating an online hall of very good players where we can acknowledge their great achievements and we can, you know, involve the fans and nominating players and talking about what made them so great. Um, and, you know, ultimately what we really want to do here is we want to create a forum where fans can come on and debate each other about, you know, anything. Should Barry Bonds and, and Roger Clemens be in the Hall of Fame? Is Fred McGriff a Hall of Famer? Um, and, you know, I personally am of the belief that debating and talking sports with friends is maybe as much fun as actually watching the sport itself. So we really want to want to try to foster that. That's right. And this is all sports, not just baseball. Correct. And, and the idea is to be able to provide both um, in, inductions and, and criteria categories and then forums for debate, podcasts. What else do you think we'll be offering people? Yeah, so we're going to we're going to have a lively blog. Uh, eventually, we're going to have a, a weekly podcast and, you know, we're going to be very active on social media, specifically TikTok. Uh, we've already started making some videos there. So find us on TikTok at Runner Up Media. Um, you know, I think. I think there's a lot that we're gonna we're gonna be able to do down the line with maybe a newsletter. Um, but to start, it's gonna be blog heavy, social media heavy. So so find us all over social media if you want to talk sports with us. All right, so we'll be launching that in in late January. But um, I wanted to sort of introduce you to the listeners. Uh, tell me, give me a couple of predictions for sports. Not necessarily like who's gonna win the Super Bowl, but like what are some meaningful things that you think might hap- could happen over the next twelve months. So one thing, one thing I actually think is, is fun to talk about and fun to think about, and it, it expands past the next 12 months because I don't think the next 12 months is, is when it'll happen. But, you know, in the past couple of years, we've started to see some momentum, particularly in the NBA building for midseason tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a real chance in the next couple of years that that really could happen. And I actually think it, could be a lot of fun pending uh, player buy-in. Um, but, you know, I, I think particularly for the NBA, we've seen a lot of problems with, you know, half the teams are always tanking, which is no fun. And a lot of the best players in the leagues aren't always playing. So if there's a way to sort of tie in a midseason tournament to, um, you know, one, making sure players are playing and, you know, maybe it's, there's a tournament for the 10 worst teams and the winner uh, gets the number one uh, pick in the lottery or something along those lines. I think, I think that, you know, with the leagues obviously always trying to make money and the problem of teams always thinking, I think that that could be an exciting thing to happen in the coming years. Okay. What else? Uh, um, How about another all the, one? Yeah, go ahead. What's that? I was going to talk about all the role changes in baseball, but, but yeah, that was, that was the next one. So, oh. I think the rule changes are going to be awesome. I, you know, I, I think that it's going to make the game a lot more fun. You know, we've to tell real fast what what the rule changes are for next year. So um, they're adding a pitch clock and you basically, I believe it's 15 or 30 seconds and you can only pick off to first base or second base two times. If you pick off a third time, then if you don't get the player out, the player advances a base. So that's one. Number two is they're banning the shift, meaning you can only have four players in the infield at once, and there must be two players on each side of second base. You know, we've seen a lot that when a lefty is up, a lefty power hitter, they basically move the entire team over to the right side of second base to to block any uh, angles of, of him getting hit. And the other one, which is super underrated but really fun, is they're making the bases bigger. I believe that they're, they were always in the past 15 inches and they're expanding them to 18 inches. Um, and so, you know, for and that, a few and that'll reasons, promote more, more base stealing. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I think they're doing it as a, like a player safety thing for less collisions and all that. But I think that ultimately it's going to promote more stolen bases. It's going to promote people trying to leg out a double to a triple and it's going to, enable players to showcase their athleticism with, you know, um, sliding around tags and all that. There's just more base to work with. So I think it's going to be really fun. And, you know, uh, the MLB has become basically a three event game where it's a home run, a walk or a strikeout. And I think that uh, without the shift, there's going to be more of a, 
more of a reason to just try to put the ball in play and it's going to make the game a lot more exciting. Yeah. So um, on a separate project, you ended up doing lots of research and, and meetings with all kinds of weird nascent sports leagues. So um, tell us some of the leagues that you ended up talking to and then give me the one that you think will be next year's pickleball. Who breaks out? Next year's pickleball. So one, um, uh, let me start with the, with the craziest league that we spoke to, uh, which is the Pillow Fighting Championship League, um, which is like, you know, I recommend you Google it because it is rather entertaining to watch. And like, you know what, maybe it can become a thing. I think that with, with how sports betting is going, if there's a way for people to bet on something, I think people are going to watch it. So that is certainly the craziest one. I think the most interesting one that really could end up having some appeal is, um, and you might have seen it if you if you are ever on ESPN after a big game and and with nothing to watch. But World Chase Tag, um, I think it. I've watched it before. It's one of those things I ended up watching without really realizing that I was watching it. Uh, but it's pretty enticing, and it is sort of a game that is tailor made for you know instant betting, which is really where the betting culture is going right now, you know, live betting, betting on a possession in football or betting on the first quarter in basketball. And and World Chase Tag really lends itself to that with like, I think it's like 60 second rounds. And it's like, one guy goes and the winner stays on. It's like a king of the court type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So keep an eye on World Chase Tag. I think it could be could be really fun. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I if I can say it'll be the next pickleball with how it's blown up, but you might see it more than you are now. Um, and tell me what happened to axe throwing. I felt like it was poised to become the next big thing. Was it a victim of COVID? Like, why why did axe throwing not break out? I don't know. I still axe throwing is still like a fun activity that I think friends go to to have a drink or, or take uh, someone on a date. But yeah, it never really. I don't know. It never really got into the culture. Maybe it's it's simply that like pickleball took off, or I don't know. I, I don't yeah. have a good answer. For I you think there. it's fun, although although it seems you know it's definitely the danger is probably part of the appeal. I remember the first time I did it, they told us the rules, and they were one no open toed shoes because the axe sometimes bounces back. You know, yeah. off your toes. Okay. Two good good rule. We only serve beer and wine, not hard alcohol, which I'm like. Can people not get really drunk on beer and wine? But all right. And three, never walk in front of someone while they're throwing an axe. Um, I thought those were pretty limited rules. At one point, I found myself standing directly behind someone as they were leaning back with the axe. I'm like, this is probably not a good place to be either. Um, I'm kind of amazed that there haven't been more beheadings. And then the question is, if there were, do you think that would make the sport less popular or more popular? It would definitely – you know, I think if there was a beheading and an axe throwing, if you're under – the belief that all publicity is good publicity it would make it more popular. I don't know if it would uh, attract more people to play, but it would definitely catch a headline here or there. I'd say I've actually never, never done ax throwing. Is it, is it just like, is it like darts essentially where, I mean, yeah, but you're using kind of your whole upper body. So it's, it's, it's right. upper body strength. Um, and yeah, it's exciting because it's a fucking ax, you know? Right. And so it's, somehow it remains exciting the whole time. Yeah. So maybe if you, I've done it like three times. Maybe if you did it constantly, yeah. you get tired of it. So the, the World Cup wraps up on Sunday. The next World Cup will be held in the United States and parts of Canada and Mexico. You know, we've been hearing I'm 49. My whole life is soccer is about to break out in the U.S. and become a, a mainstream sport, just like basketball and football and baseball. And it's never happened. Is this the moment or is this just sort of a, a fiction that will never occur? So – we're really getting there. You know, I actually, I played soccer growing up. It's one of my favorite sports. So I, I've always followed the U.S. team pretty closely. Um, the talent that we have on the team right now is unmatched in the past literally ever. Like we, all of our main guys are playing uh, overseas for like legitimate teams. We have young talent. The The thing that is very hard to predict is like Brazil has – their young talent is as good as it's ever been too. And same with Argentina and same with England. So like it, it'll be seen if we can ever really, uh, really, you know, create talent that's on, on par with them. But I will say in a tournament setting, like we just saw Morocco go to the semifinals. So like 
you know, you, you, you get hot for a few games, you get a hot goalie and you really can't make a run. Like they, they can definitely play with these teams now, which is, which is a new development. Right. But isn't the challenge that because at least the NBA and the NFL are so popular in, in the U S all of our great athletes go into those two things. If, if the very best athletes in both of those leagues had played soccer their whole lives instead, I got to imagine they'd be pretty good. Right. Um, I think but, you're probably right. It's probably a yeah. reason that our women's team is so good. Right. That's exactly right. Um, do you foresee women's – it feels like women's soccer is having a moment. Um, do, do you see it kind of taking off from here, or do you think it's kind of plateaued? It's really hard to predict. I think that – I don't think it's plateaued. Definitely not plateaued. I, I think it – like taking off – I don't know about taking off, but I can see it slowly building and, and continuing to progress because um, women's soccer is fun to watch, and they're really, really good. Um, so I don't know, like, you know, whenever the, the women's national team is in a big tournament, I think a lot of people watch, we'll have to see if like, um, if their year long teams are able to take off. I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, I, I don't even, you know, it's tough because I don't know how much viewership even the MLS gets. So like, it's hard to kind of, um, to gauge what, what the women's will be like, but it, I don't think it's plateaued. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. All right. The, even though I said we weren't going to do predictions in the, in the last minute here, who's going to win the Super Bowl? Who is going to win the Super Bowl? I would have said the 49ers before um, before Garoppolo got hurt, but Purdy I will go I watched I watched them last night. Purdy, Purdy, Purdy does look great, but if I'm if I'm making a prediction on a podcast, I don't know if I can go with the seventh round rookie who's only played two games. Um, last, I, pick I, last pick in the draft. I don't know. I think I think it's really hard to bet against Patrick Mahomes in a big game. I, I'll go with the Chiefs. What's your pick? Who, um, you know, only because I've watched the Niners the last. I watched them against the Bucks, and I watched them last time against the Seahawks. Uh, and I love the the Purdy story. I'm, I'm going to go with them. Um, though the Eagles also look really good. They so, they do look really good. Um, NBA, who wins the title? NBA Celtics. Yeah, that could be. Um, it. The the fun team for me would be the Pelicans in New Orleans. Um, I agree with that. It's such a great city. It's actually a great place to go to a game. Um, and they do have a tremendous amount of talent. And they're sitting on like 15 first-round draft picks as well from the Davis and Holiday trade. So, and they um, have just so much young talent. And Zion, after two years of basically getting crushed day in, day out by the media, he's kind of flipping the script. So 100%. Next year's World Series winner? New York Yankees. I'm going to go with the New York Nets. <laughs> All right, Ari, thank you. And we're going to have you back on when we launch the Hall of Very Good Players. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Sure. All right. Welcome back to Firewall. Still part of our round robin predictions process and, and 23 ahead and the year behind. Julie Wernersbach is familiar to the listeners. She is the general manager and boss of PT Knitwear. So, Julie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So let's take a quick look back. What has surprised you the most in opening this bookstore and running it so far? Oh, my goodness. That's a big question. Um, you know, I want to say this is a pleasant surprise. It was to find how many people were genuinely just so thrilled that a new bookstore exists, that people in this neighborhood were thrilled that we were another bar, that we weren't, a, you know, another dispensary, um, but that we were just a bookstore. I, you know, I knew that we'd be well received, but seeing the real joy and light in people's faces when they just see, oh, you're, you're just a bookstore. You're here to sell books and that's your deal. And it's like, yeah, there's no, that's it. Like, that's what we're doing here, you know? Yeah. We're, we're, I was certainly surprised when we made that shopkeepers.com list of like the top 10 new stores globally sure. open in 2022. Um, so, so what is it that you, it feels like we're, other than the making money part, doing things right. Um, what are you most excited about so far? And, and what are you kind of looking to improve upon? So far, I am most excited about, well, a couple of things, how tight our team is and how all in everybody is here. Um, everybody who's working here is so dedicated to what we're doing and so into the work and that, you know, you have to really just get the right mix of people. It's really hard to engineer that. So I'm very pleasantly surprised about that by that. Um, and I'm looking forward in the new year to really digging into even more community work. We've established some really great partnerships with different organizations and we've done, you know, community gift wrapping and different fundraisers and we're raising books, uh, donations for prison rights right now and donating books to kids in juvenile detention. And all of that's been great. And we've done a lot more of that than I thought we'd be able to do in our first six months. And I'm really excited to dig into even more of that next year. 
So when we opened the podcast studio, I mean, just to be honest, neither you, me, nor Hugo really knew what to expect, right? Mm -hmm. It's the first oh, yeah. time we're aware of that anyone can just use it for free. And it was like, this could range from being a huge success to all the equipment being destroyed and stolen in 48 yeah. hours. Uh, <laughs> how I was uh, how's it going? It's going really well. I mean, we it's you know we didn't have the studio open the first couple of weeks. We're still finishing up a couple of things in here, and the number of people who just walked by and were like, "What is that? How do I get in there?" I was like, "Oh, all right, there will be interest in this place." And now, honestly, it's like really the demand has really exceeded our expectations, and now we're in all of the the fun problems of oh, how do we manage as many requests, and how many do we manage as many users, and how do we streamline everything even more than we have. Um, it really, the response to the studio has been incredible. And it's, you know, it's free to use, which like blows people's minds. They can't believe that this is just so accessible and that they can just schedule a time and walk in and do it. So who's the typical group or person kind of now using the studio to conduct a podcast? Well, I don't know if there is typical. Everybody has different topics. We have some book podcasts. We have various culture podcasts. We have people talking about all kinds of things. I think if there's a common denominator, it's that these are often people who were recording at home on their iPhones and people who got into podcasting maybe during the pandemic and were really into it, but you know, we're doing it all really DIY and on their own. Um, and so they're coming in here now and having a blast with the equipment. Um, but that's the through line. Otherwise it's really, people are talking about everything. Cool. Um, events. So we, one thing I think we've done really well, really quickly is we're hosting lots of events. Um, yes. One, why, why do you think uh, this has been sort of easy or at least quick to take off. And what were your couple of favorite events so far? Yeah, you know, I really did think that we were going to have a much bigger uphill battle. Um, I shouldn't say battle, but just that we'd have to do a lot more singing and dancing with publishers uh, than we have because there's so many bookstores in New York City and, and in Brooklyn and they're all hosting events. But there still really is a need. It's such a literary city. There are so many writers here in town and so many people passing through all the time that I was really pleasantly surprised to find that there is really a need for event space. And also we have, you know, a very specific event space it was designed for book events. And that is very different from other bookstores in New York City, a lot of places that have the space, they're moving shelves out of the way to do it, or they're, you know, doing whatever they need to do to move furniture. And we're built in, like our, our space is built in, our sound system is nice. Um, so that, that's been a, a really pleasant surprise. And it just helps. I've worked in this business for 16 years, and most of that's been events, and I know a lot of good people, you know, so that has also been really helpful. Um, my favorite events so far, there are so many. Um, I got to moderate the conversation with Gary Steingart about um, our, our country house. Wait. Uh, it's December, like trying to remember one title straight, yeah, right? Country like, friends, I think. Country friends. <laughs> like it, it's a house full of friends in that book. Yeah, um, I like it. Yeah, that was a really, really fun event. I mean, he's so easy, right? Like he's he's a performer, you know? And so he really can take one small question and run with it. But uh, that was really fun. I've, I've hosted events with him so many times over the years. That it's always nice to kind of catch up and see where he is now. And that was a great big crowd and everybody's really happy and he's so funny. So that was a really fun event. Um, and then we host, I'm a just kind of quiet country fan. <laughs> um, and we hosted Margot Price, um, who has a memoir out this year uh, about sort of her rise to fame. And that was awesome. She performed with Valerie June, like Valerie June was moderating the conversation. And then Margot performed. And it was a really special night when we can mix like music and books and stuff like that. It was really cool. So that was one of my favorites. And so I, the most famous person to do event, I guess, is Elizabeth Olsen. She's yes. not a famous writer, but she is, you know, a Marvel hero. Yes, uh, yes. So and a sister to the, the Olsen twins, you know, which right. I have to confess, you know, I don't own a television. I don't, I, I miss some things in popular culture. When we got the email about her, I was like, why are they pitching us this author? Is she local? I don't understand who this is. And then like the staff here was like, oh my God. And I was like, oh, oh, she's famous. And then as soon as we put those tickets on sale, they sold out immediately. And I was like, oh yeah, she's really famous. I've caught up to it now. I've done the Googling. I understand cool. now. And then we had Aubrey Plaza who just started on, yes. on the White Lotus. Uh, was yes. she nice daughter? Yeah, she was really nice. You know, it's always interesting. Like with celebs there, they're so accustomed to attention um, and some handle that well and some don't. Um, and behind the scenes, she was really, really kind and really nice. And one of those, she would actually like have a conversation with a bookseller while she was signing books. You know what I mean? Like an actual, like being a human being type thing, which is always so lovely to see in the authors. And yeah, How is Mark Maron? 
grumpy. Um, but you know, a grump with the heart of gold is, is the thing, you know, I, I feel like I, I've listened to his podcast for years and I'm like, Oh, I know Marin. He's good. I know exactly how he's going to be. But even I was like taken aback a little bit. I'm like, Oh yeah, he's, he's kind of grumpy. Um, but you know, you get him on the right topic and he's interested and he's happy. And that's just kind of who he is. I got him talking about coffee and anger and it was perfect. We were great. <laughs> what were your favorite books from 2022? Oh my gosh. Um, Oh, there are so many. Um, if I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffery. It is a debut novel. Maybe you'd call it a collection of stories. Um, it's set in Miami, Hurricane Andrew, looking at father-son relationships um, and being mixed race and where does he fit in. Uh, that, that book really blew me away. It just the writing itself is just phenomenal. Um, uh, stories from the Tenants Downstairs, Sadiq Fana. He is a New York City public school teacher, and he wrote a collection of stories that's all set in this one uh, apartment building in Harlem. Um, and it's just all the lives of the different tenants. Uh, that was one of my favorites. And then for a nonfiction, I will say, this is from a small press, Coffeehouse Press, Brown Neon by Raquel Gutierrez. Um, it's a collection of essays that are looking at um, desert living out in Tucson, also art and gentrification and where, you know, she is an art, has been an arts admin for a long time and looking at like what her role has been and even gentrifying some of her own neighborhoods, which is interesting and kind of like how you do a lot of these things responsibly. I mean, she's just a phenomenal writer. So that was one of my favorites as well. What about you? Um, uh, tomorrow, 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 as you know, oh, was, yeah. was, my, was my favorite. I thought To, to Paradise, I really loved. Uh Honestly, you like that one. Not everybody likes to paradise. <laughs> I mean, it was hard and it was uneven, but I thought it was so ambitious and generally yeah. she pulled it off um, to the point where I, I felt like it, it deserved some real recognition. Um, yeah. And I think you, you were nice enough to put my list of my favorite books on the PNT website. Yeah. Um, you're a juror on the Gotham Book Prize. You have to nominate books next month. And any initial sense of who you might want to nominate? I haven't read them all yet, so I'm not gonna. I'm gonna keep my lips sealed. I do. I have. So, you know, I don't. I, I don't want to say anything until I've read them all. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, what What big books are coming out in 2023, or authors that, that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one that I'm looking forward to, just as a bookseller who's looking at the numbers every day, is Prince Harry's memoir, um, Spare. It is coming out in January. Crown was very smart to do it right after the holidays and give us all a nice sales boost in January. Um, I, you know, my joke last week was that I was predicting that it, he's going to outsell Obama. Um, a Promised Land sold like three or four million copies or something like that. Um, but now, you know, the documentary came out, what was that, last week? And I feel like there response has been mixed. So now I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but that one's going to be a big, big hit for sure. I mean, people are going to eat that up. There seems to be just sort of bottomless interest in what it was like to be part of the royal family. So um, that's a big one. Another one that I'm looking forward to is Rebecca Mackay's new book. Um, and I'm just going to double check the title of it. She yeah. wrote The Great Believers. I love The Great Believers. Me too. I yeah. sobbed at the end of that book so hard. that It was gorgeous. She has a book called I Have Some Questions for You. It's a new novel and uh, of particular interest to us because the main character is a podcaster. Um, oh, and she we get her to come to the store for a reading, do you think? Trying, trying. Yeah, yeah. We're, already, we're already talking. I went to a nice little cocktail party and chatted with her and her publicists. Um, uh, and so it's like, it's a, a kind of like a murder mystery type thing. Like she's the pot, the main character is a podcaster and she's trying to solve this, uh, this death that happened at her boarding school when she was a teenager. So like, if you like serial, if you're into those types of like podcast show podcasts, like this is totally the book. Um, it's definitely different than great believers. Um, it's like, like total page turner, total page turner. Um, so that one is that one I think is going to do really well. Colson Whitehead has a new one coming out, another novel, Crook Manifesto, follow up to Harlem Shuffle, similar characters, also Harlem, but I can't remember the decades now off the top of my did head. You like Harlem Shuffle? You know, I did like it. I I was surprised by. I don't want to say how quickly I read it, but how sort of ready I was to read it, and I I did like it. I thought I could tell. You know why? Because I could tell he was having fun. I could tell, you know, he had just, the last two books before that had been Nickel Boys and Underground Railroad, which were really, books, yeah. really great reads, but like in their own right, but tough books, you know, and I could tell in the writing itself that he had a good time with Harlem Shuffle. Um, so I, I enjoyed it for that. What were your thoughts on that one? 
Um, you know, it's funny. I have a weird take on Whitehead, which is I thought The Intuitionist was an amazing book. And I don't I haven't liked anything nearly as much yeah. um, since then. Um, he wrote this nonfiction book about him competing in the World Series of Poker. I really love that one, too. Yeah, no, awesome. um, yeah. Harold was, I think, because he's so hyped right now yeah. that the, it, it didn't meet expectations for me. Yeah. But um, but that's, you know, he, he's yeah. operating at a very, very high bar. And the yeah. final piece of good news is we passed our health inspection. We did pass our health inspection try. on the first try. On the first try. I That just happened on Monday. I am thrilled beyond belief. Like I'm so, so happy. Um, so now we're gonna, we're looking at what it takes to get a beer and wine license. We can add that for our events. Um, but really I'm just so thrilled to have that big letter A in the front window. I like, what a relief. Yeah, so the final, so please come to PNT where if you eat the food that we serve in the cafe, there's a very good chance you will not get salmonella. Department of Health guarantees it. Yeah. So uh, I, I feel like we're, we're, we're finally hit the big time. Great day. <laughs> so, really, thanks for a great year and a great podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.